If you follow the news closely, the South Korean president made a quick stop in Ukraine. Besides expressing his remorse and compassion for the deceased Ukrainian soldiers, he also showed international solidarities with the Ukrainian president. Such move indeed that drew the attention among the international members. But meanwhile, the pre- South Korean president also promised that will increase the shipment of non-lethal military items such as the body armor and the helmet this year. And he said that South Korea, this country, will also provide humanitarian aid worth, get this, $150 million this year and up from $100 million last year to the nation of Ukraine. How should we understand all of that? And what is the political strategy behind this partnership between South Korea and Ukraine? And also, by helping Ukraine, does that mean that this country of South Korea is going to get more help in terms of avoid major disaster with North Korea. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, if you follow our show, you should be familiar with our distinguished speaker, who is Jenny Town. Again, Jenny is a senior fellow at the Stimson Center, and the, she's the director of Stimson's 30A North program. Her, asper, her expertise is in North Korea, U.S. DPRK relations, and U.S. ROK alliance, and Northeast Asia regional security. Well, Jenny... And welcome back to The Missing Piece, and happy summer to you. Thanks, Will. It's great to be back. Jenny, again, as we mentioned before, the South Korean president made a quick stop in Ukraine. The first question I want to ask you is, how surprised should we be when we find out that the South Korea will also are going to increase the shipment of non-lethal military items to the nation of Ukraine. And also, the current president mentioned that provide additional $150 million worth humanitarian aid to the country. How should we understand the move made by the South Korean president? Well, South Korea has always been um, sympathetic to the Ukrainians and has always offered moral support, has always been willing to offer humanitarian support. Um, the hesitation has always been on the lethal aid side, um, as there are laws in South Korea that prohibit uh, the provision of lethal aid um, to other countries or, or, you know, aid going into countries that are in active conflict. Um, that's always been the pressure on the the South Koreans that the South Koreans have resisted. Everything else, they've been more than supportive. Um, and I think increasing the humanitarian aid um, makes a lot of sense. And especially since they're not providing humanitarian aid to South Korea or to North Korea these days, mm. um, as well as, uh, you know, providing non-lethal aid helmets and stuff, these kinds of things um, don't violate the laws. They're not tough decisions in South Korea. They're not controversial decisions in South Korea. Um, and I think there's a bit of um, planning for the future going on as well, because there was a big emphasis on the um, being positioned to help with reconstruction of Ukraine as well. So trying to fit into that space, be a good partner now within the, the values-based um, support system, um, and being poised to be, you know, on the short list of people that are states that are um, tapped to help with the reconstruction efforts. Mm. You know, again, Jenny, not only the South Korean president made a quick stop to Ukraine, and also he participated one of the major events, which is the NATO summit. 
And again, this is such a big deal for a country such as South Korea. And of course, we've seen um, the leader from Japan was there as well. But meanwhile, I want to read something to you and also help you get your reaction. Some believe that South Korean's vis- uh, of his visit to NATO actually shows, again, the solidarity with the international order. But however, most of us that don't really understand his presence with the NATO allies or with the NATO members at the moment. And also, does that mean that by participating the NATO summit, that this could be another membership to the NATO expansion? What do you say to that? I, I don't think it's about membership, um, but there has been uh, several efforts over the past couple of years, especially to really deepen ties between Japan, South Korea and NATO. Mm. Um, and I, I think this is, you know, the issues that they're actually cooperating on, like cybersecurity, for instance, is one of the the, um, the working groups that they're trying to get more involved in with NATO. This is a transnational problem, is a global problem um, that especially affects uh, the countries in, in East Asia. But I see this as a larger sort of hedging strategy. Um, you know, I think that both in South Korea and Japan, they're both watching the U.S., domestic political situation evolve. Um, It is election season uh, as we move into, uh, as we, in the lead up to the presidential elections in the future, Mm. um, in the near future. (laughs) Um, And of course, one of the candidates is Donald Trump. Mm. Um, And during the Trump years, um, Trump was very anti-alliances and especially antagonistic to South Korea. Mm. Um, And I think there's a lot of hedging going on as to what if, what if, uh, President Trump does get reelected. What would that mean to U.S. ROK relations? What would that mean to U.S.-Japan relations? What does that mean to U.S. relations with NATO? Um, what is the U.S. role in the global order in the future? Um, is the path we're on sustainable? There, I think all of these questions are at play right now. And I think instead of waiting to hear that answer, there are moves both within NATO and within um, other U.S. allies to try and uh, try and create options for mm-hmm. themselves um, and strengthen alliances now among the network of allies um, in just, uh, like I said, as a hedging and just in case um, the U.S. position on allies and the U.S. alliances, bilateral alliances in the future um, or collective security alliances in the future start to weaken. Jenny, when we talk about South Korea, let's bring North Korea into our conversation as well. Again, this is a direct quote from the South Korean president, and I quote, it says, In particular, the war in Ukraine has reminded us all that a security crisis in one particular region can have a global impact. Your interpretation for that. So in other words, when we look at the war in Ukraine, again, everyone is pretty much terrified about what's going to happen because we don't know what's going to happen to the war in Ukraine. But meanwhile, by making the statement to say that a security crisis in one particular region can have a global impact, what was the South Korean president trying to say to the world? Does that mean only related to the war in Ukraine? And also we need to bring North Korea into the conversation. Is it time for us to deal with both of them? What do you say to that? Well, it's not just about Ukraine. Um, you know, 
this was a, a war that I think has really had a big psychological effect on a lot of um, U.S. allies and especially South Korea um, about what what do we learn from this war? Mm. Um, this is the first time you had a nuclear weapon state attack a non-nuclear weapon state and threaten to use nuclear weapons. Um, this is in direct violation, egregious violation of the UN Charter, of the NPT, and the way that they're conducting the war. It's a, a several violations of the Geneva Conventions, the way we think about war. Um, I think that the biggest impact this has had is it's really revived the 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 notion that only nuclear weapons deter nuclear weapons mm. um, and so for a country like Ukraine who once had nuclear weapons even though they weren't um, Ukrainian nuclear weapons and Ukraine didn't have command and control you know there's all there's one narrative that's like if they had kept the weapons how different would the situation be um, what are countries learning from this um, there's a greater emphasis on nuclear weapons in general as sort of the answer to defenses. If you have nuclear weapons, you won't have these problems, which isn't necessarily true, which has been disproven over time, which is, you know, when the nonproliferation regime was strong, was, you know, really working to erode this notion. Um, and instead, what you have are, you know, nuclear modernization campaigns going on in the U.S., in China. You have, you know, further WND development going on in North Korea. Um, and so you have a lot of questioning, you know, in South Korea about their own security future. So how does this relate to them? Well, what what does China learn from this um, and how might that um, change their reactions or influence their um, their choices when it comes to, for instance, Taiwan. Mm. Um, and what does North Korea learn from this? Mm. Um, but the other the other question is, you know, I think a lot of countries are looking at NATO's response um, to Russia's actions, the U.S. response to Russia's actions, looking at, you know, the how wars conducted against countries that have nuclear weapons mm. and sort of the restraint there and the reluctance to get directly involved. Um, and that has also had a huge psychological effect, especially in South Korea and Japan. Um, even though, you know, the U.S. relationship to Ukraine is very different than mm. what it is to South Korea or Japan, um, there's it raises a lot of questions, um, not only of U.S. commitment, what will they do against a country that has nuclear weapons um, like North Korea, um, but also what if there's already a conflict going on and U.S. resources are already tied up in something. So what happens if there is a Taiwan contingency and their U.S. resources are there and North Korea, you know, what does North Korea do then? Do they do something either in coordination with China or opportunistically? And where will U.S. resources go then? So th this has brought out a lot of anxieties about what conflict could look like in the future um, and how prepared is South Korea, how prepared is the alliance to deal with a much larger set of issues and a much broader um, challenges that could come up in any kind of conflict. Jenny, the reason why I want to bring North Korea into our conversation, because in April this year, that the South Korean president and also U.S. President Joe Biden announced plan 
to reinforce their country's deterrence capabilities, again, such as the periodic docking of the U.S. nuclear-armed submarine in South Korea and also the establishment of a new bilateral nuclear consulted group. Now, again, I think the question at this moment, as you mentioned before, U.S. politics is standing at the crossroads domestically and also internationally. Now, recently, we have not heard so much regarding U.S. strategy to counter the presence of North Korea. So again, that's why everyone is asking the question, what is the attitude from U.S. today towards North Korea? Again, given the fact that countries around North Korea are very anxious based on this ongoing, or should we say, unstoppable nuclear weapon development. So again, how serious is this announcement or how serious is the relationship, the partnership between South Korean president and also Joe Biden made regarding this nuclear deterrence capability? How should we understand that? And how serious do you think the effort is today? Well, the the Washington Declaration, um, the the components of the Washington Declaration, none of them were actually new things that were only decided at the summit. Mm. Um, All of these things have been in discussion and been evolving over the years. And it's not the first time that the U.S. has ever had any kind of consultation on extended deterrence or on nuclear policy with the South Koreans. There has been the deterrence strategy, um, DSC, the deterrence strategy committee that talked a lot about deterrence planning, didn't use the word nuclear, but is implied in the deterrence. There's been the um, EDSCG, the extended deterrence dialogue that's part of the Korea integrated defense and deterrence dialogue process. Um, So there have been various levels of consultation on nuclear policy that didn't have the word nuclear in them. Mm. Um, And this is really sort of an extension of that, an evolution of that, taking it one step further to say that here we are creating a, a pathway for the U.S. to be more open about how um, nuclear uh, nuclear policy is developed, how nuclear decision-making um, the the challenges to it and sort of the, the levers within it um, to helping the South Koreans better understand um, what might go into a decision uh, if the decision is ever forced on the Korean Peninsula of, of whether or not to use nuclear weapons. It is not nuclear sharing. Um, it is not um, giving South Korea nuclear weapons, um, but it's having a much more realistic discussion and a deeper discussion um, in those aspects, as well as um, there are components of the Washington Declaration that emphasize, um, you know, beginning to talk about conventional support for nuclear operations as well. Um, so what would be the role of, you know, the Combined Forces Command, for instance, in the ROC Army in case of nuclear use, um, and really starting to play through again and address some of these new scenarios um, that are possible. Uh, but, you know, the some of this is because um, the, the U.S. has a strategy, a negotiation strategy with North Korea. If North Korea decides it wants to denuclearize, we are ready to talk to them about denuclearization mm. and, and how that pathway could move forward. 
but in the current geopolitical situation, that's really unlikely, right? For, right? for North Korea to come in the middle of that, in the middle of an arms race going on in East Asia with high tensions building between the U.S. and China and throughout the region, um, for, for North Korea to come to the table and be willing to put limits on their own arms um, development while the rest of the region opens up is, is just unrealistic, right? Um, but we don't have a strategy for rebuilding diplomacy with North Korea. We're just waiting for them, mm-hmm. right, to make a decision that we want to hear, and then we're willing to work out the terms. Um, so in, in the meantime, the way that the U.S. has approached this is we've, you know, we've offered this open-ended talks anytime, anywhere, um, with the implication about denuclearization, uh, which, of course, doesn't get us anywhere, and the North Koreans don't even respond. Mm. Um, and the North Koreans have made several statements um, saying that this is a disingenuous um, you know, opening to begin with. And it's never this formulation has never been successful in the past either. In the meantime, what we're doing is we're really focusing on um, building, trying to increase assurance of our allies, right? A lot of this deterrence messaging to North Korea, um, a lot of it is really geared towards like a South Korean audience. Like how do we make the South Koreans feel better? How do we make them feel safer? How do we reiterate and reinforce our commitment over and over and over um, to help fill the assurance gap, to help Mm. reduce some of the anxieties in South Korea? at a time when we we haven't had much luck and we don't really have a plan for North Korea. Um, And that's really what we see here is a lot of um, really catering to our allies' concerns rather than greater efforts um, to to address some of the root of the problem. Jenny, do you think the U.S. is actually running out of patience, again, as you mentioned before, while waiting for the response from North Korea, because again, this can go on for years, because right now we don't know when and how North Korea is ever going to respond to American or to the U.S. Again, at this moment, at least it's, I mean, again, I want to use this uh, a metaphor. It's like you're waiting for a date to come, but you know what? You don't know when the day is going to arrive, and perhaps maybe the date is not even interested in showing up to having the decent conversation with you. So does that mean the U.S. is actually running out of patience? And is there any alternative for the U.S. to get support and maybe to get additional help in uh, in addition to South Korea, could be someone else, can really play a bigger role while waiting for the response from North Korea? What do you say to that? Well, I I don't think I wouldn't frame it as running out of patience. I would frame it as, again, the approach has been in the meantime, let's focus on improving assurance, improving defenses, Mm. um, gearing up to match, you know, growing capabilities. Um, And so it's sort of a if you want to use the dating analogy, (laughs) Um, the date has already said no several times or has mm. not responded, has ghosted the United States. Um, but the, you know, the U.S. keeps texting back and forth of like, hey, still open for a date, still open for a date, mm. still open for a date. Um, but also isn't waiting around, sitting at home, mm. you know, waiting for that yes to come. Mm. Um, and so the, this is a, a lot of attention, like I said, is being really focused on the other side of the equation. How do we make our 
friends feel safer? How do we be better prepared in case something goes wrong? Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the bigger problem is that without a positive um, diplomatic channel and without greater diplomatic efforts to find a way to have discussions with the North Koreans, to find a topic that the North Koreans might be interested in discussing um, and building a diplomatic moment um, that would get that would bring them to the table, not necessarily on denuclearization right away, but we have a lot of issues going on mm. um, that are, you know, as tensions are rising, um, as the risk of nuclear war rises, there's a lot there to talk about. <laughs> mm. And we keep focusing on like the the hardest issue within that, where we we need to be really starting to engage in discussions, not just with the North Koreans, but with North Korea, with China, with Russia, with everyone in the region and have a real regional security dialogue because there's a lot going on um, that really, you know, poses serious uh, challenges in a region of such great economic, military, economic and political importance to the world um, that no one wants to see conflict in Northeast Asia, um, but instead of really working on on building political off-ramps, instead of working on tension reduction, all sides are just working on the defenses and deterrence messaging, which is actually making the situation worse. Mm. So we have a strategy right now, it's just not a great strategy if we want to avoid conflict. But Jenny, recently a, a comment made by current Secretary of the State, Anthony Blinken, said once, regarding the tension or regarding the issue of North Korea, if China decides not to do anything, U.S. will definitely take an active approach. So how should we understand that? You know, again, the reason why I, I said that before is, is U.S. running out of patience is to say, on one hand, I don't want to wait anymore because, again, I'm waiting for the response. I'm waiting for the response. But this way can go on for years or even decades without seeing anything. But on the other hand, China somehow got looped into the conversation. And again, the comments made by a U.S. official said, if China decides not to take any actions or not to help, it's time for U.S. to take the matter into our own hands. And so does that mean that U.S. is going to completely go alone on this and without seeing any consultation or without any help? Because meanwhile, we have not seen any response from China either, since China is very occupied with a lot of international uh, agenda. What do you say to that, Jenny? I mean, that was really a message to China, um, trying to compel greater um, greater cooperation with the U.S. approach to this issue. Um, it's not a very compelling way to do so, mm. um, especially um, as we have already rising U.S.-China tensions. But there, there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of concern and a lot of losing patience, not only with North Korea but with uh, but with the the paralysis of the UN Security Council and the and the um, inability to get kind of a unanimous global consensus on what to do. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, there was a point like in 2017, there was pretty unanimous global consensus 
um, that something needed to be done that, uh, you know, in that instance, China was willing to be harder on North Korea in terms of sanctions implementation. The UN Security Council, whenever there were, um, whenever North Korea did uh, ballistic missile tests that violated mm. UN Security Council resolutions, there was unanimous um, adoption of new resolutions that would impose new punishments um, new punitive measures such as sanctions um, on the situation. Uh, so there was a way to respond um, that had the backing of the global community um, that, you know, really gave the sense that we are doing something together that, you know, that in hopes that it would dissuade the North Koreans from doing further action in that way. Uh, but right now, you don't have that, right? Mm. The UN Security Council has not been in agreement on North Korea since 2017. Um, everything that North Korea has done since then, anytime any new resolution at the UN Security Council has been proposed has always been, you know, either blocked by the Chinese and Russians or vetoed by the Chinese and Russians if it has gone through, um, which is in the current geopolitical environment, perfect, you know, it's, it's expected, mm. <laughs> especially since this is an issue now where um, as we move towards a reforming ideological um, that, uh, you know, North Korea plays a role on the autocratic side of that ideological divide. Right. Um, so I, I think there was a lot of a, a lot of that messaging was trying to compel China to to stop blocking efforts. Um, uh, and a lot of the, oh, the U.S. will take action. Um, I think we've we've already seen this play mm -hmm. out uh, somewhat where there's greater unilateral um, sanctions that have been imposed. I think there's there's some, you know, there's been some planning for secondary sanctions, especially on Chinese companies and businesses mm -hmm. and Russian companies and businesses. Um, that have always been somewhat uh, held in reserve because of political relations that are probably likely to move forward if we can't get more cooperation on this issue. Um, but the, you know, so I think when when the, when Blinken talks about where we'll take action, it's more action along the lines of stuff that we've already done, but that will also target China and Russia in the process. Of course, Jenny, again, even though that the U.S. is waiting for the response, but meanwhile, once in a while, that we do get a chance to hear some response from the North Korean side. Again, I want to read something to you. I want to get your interpretation on this. Now, in Pyongyang, again, you, we talked about this person before. It's called Kim Yo-jong, the powerful sister of North Korean uh, current leader Kim Jong-un. Now, recently that she actually slammed the UN Security Council for convening a meeting to pick up a quarrel with her country. And again, a self-defense step while ignoring the U.S. push to increase the danger of a nuclear war. And again, in a statement that she called the council a new Cold War mechanism totally inclined to the U.S., and the West. Now, again, what does that mean when she made that statement? Again, it's, so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. She's saying that if we have a war today, 
the war started actually by the U.S. Or, you know, again, U.S. today is being too uh, provocative when we are looking at this uh, regional uh, uh, stability. So again, Jenny, you're the expert. How should we interpret her comments and also her reaction by slamming the U.S. Security Council and also the action done by the West? Yeah, um, the North Koreans always object to whenever the UN Security Council meets to talk about North Korea. <laughs> they always object. Um, the level of objection, of course, depends on um, the the gravity of the time. Mm. Um, so there should be as that she made a statement uh, condemning the the UN Security Council for meeting. Um, they always do. Uh, this and they always complain about this isn't just North Korea acting in isolation, um, that there are, you know, moves that North Korea takes that do that that do respond to and they feel are reciprocal responses to moves that the United States is making. Um, the U.S. tends to the, the way the West looks at the situation is is that these are not equivalent, mm. right, that the actions that North Korea are taking um, violate in a, international law. They violate UN Security Council resolutions, whereas the military drills and things that the US and South Korea are doing, they have the sovereign right to do so. They're not prohibited by international law and they're following international law and in doing so. Um, that's all technically true, uh, but it isn't necessarily the best option for forward. And again, it's very, I think, to me, it's very short-sighted. It's really looking at, you know, how much more can we demonstrate? Um, it might have some, you know, the hope is that it has some deterrence effect, but a lot of it is, again, really geared towards a South Korean audience. Um, bigger and better demonstrations of power um, to reassure South Korea that, you know, the capabilities are sound, um, and to, you know, remind North Korea that we have these capabilities. Well, the North Koreans know we have these capabilities. Mm. We don't have to keep reminding them of this. And I think there was a, a subsequent statement recently by the, the ministry, the defense ministry in, in North Korea um, that really emphasized this idea that perception is important. Um, where, you know, bringing in the... Um, the ballistic missile submarine, the nuclear armed submarine is sort of, they described it as the, the highest visualization of U.S. nuclear capabilities. Mm. Um, and then they reminded that, you know, North Korea has in their, in their last nuclear law, it did provide conditions under which they would consider nuclear use. Um, and in the case of those conditions, um, that perception also matters, that, you know, there's preemptive um, clauses and, and conditions under which they would consider preemptive clauses if they believe that a nuclear attack is imminent, if they believe that an attack that they're on their leadership is imminent. Um, so that, you know, I think it was a, a warning to the U.S. of like here, and a warning to U.S. and South Korea that here you guys are really working on deterrence messaging of, mm. of you know, demonstrating capabilities. Um, but, you know, be careful. Be careful of how 
how much you really want to demonstrate that and be careful of the message that you're sending. Um, because if you really want the North Koreans to believe you can attack at any time, that you may attack at any time, um, at what point uh, will they take that as a, a threat of imminent attack? Jenny, two more questions before letting you go. Again, recently, I'm sure that you uh, also follow the news that apparently American soldier, again, I want to be careful that he joined this tour and then just randomly abandoned the tour and then he got the opportunity to flee into North Korea. But so far, again, this piece of news shocked the entire uh, intelligence community. Again, he's a young soldier and his name is Travis King. So, Jenny, can you help us with the situation? How do we understand that? And also, what do we know so far regarding how North Korea is going to treat the American citizen? Because previously, we've seen some American citizens, they, they got into the hands of North Korean regime. And some unfortunately lost their lives and others, you know, again, have different stories. But in particularly in this case, what do you know and what do you make of that? So I think it's important first to distinguish between a detainee and what Travis King did. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is a case where as far as from what we've learned so far, um, uh, Private King was uh, had been in a South Korean military prison in South Korea, was being sent back to the U.S. for disciplinary actions mm. um, for incidents that happened in South Korea, um, was about to get discharged from the military, um, somehow was escorted to the airport, um, but the military escort couldn't take him all the way to the plane. He didn't get on the plane he had planned in advance um, and applied to go on this JSA tour, tour of the joint security area um, at the DMZ where they have the um, right on the border um, of, you know, half the buildings are in North Korea mm. and the other half of the buildings are in South Korea. Um, so he had planned this out. It wasn't random. Um, he had been accepted on this tour um, somehow, though, he made it from the airport back to the city to go on the tour. And then during the tour, defected, um, ran into North Korea. Um, so he went voluntarily. Um, he was not detained. Mm. Um, so now, you know, the North Koreans need to decide um, whether or not they admit him. Um, this is this does not happen often that an American would do this. Mm. Um, there's cases, you know, from like in the post-war era. Um, and, you know, one of the famous cases, for instance, was uh, Charles Jenkins was a U.S. soldier who defected to North Korea in 1965. Mm. You know, it was a long time ago and a different right. time. Um, he was accepted he was admitted he was kept there over the years given a wife and and you know spent the almost uh, a large portion of his life adult life in north korea disillusioned by war was also facing disciplinary actions for des desertion these kinds of things um the more recent cases of this happening there was a case in 2014 where um a man tried to uh tried to swim from China to North Korea um, to seek asylum in North Korea. The, the North Koreans admitted him, let him give a speech 
you know, televised this speech. It was an anti-American rant, but it was very clear he had mental problems. He talked about UFOs and mm. some other crazy conspiracy theory kind of stuff. Um, and then the North Koreans eventually um, returned him mm. to the United States. Uh, there was another case in 2014 of Matthew Todd Miller, who tried to, um, at the at immigration, trying to get into the country, tore up his visa, saying that he wanted to um, defect, but then also had intentions to, stated intentions to, he wanted to be arrested, he wanted to see North Korean prisons, he wanted to write a book about North Korean prisons. And the North Koreans then um, arrested him for espionage. And so then he became a prisoner. Um, that is so far, so that's kind of the experience of U.S. citizens trying to defect to North Korea. Um, it doesn't give us a lot <laughs> to go off of in terms of how North Korea might respond to this situation. Um, it doesn't give us a lot to um, to offer about how the U.S. reacts um, and how much the U.S. may or may not try and get um, this uh, soldier back if he decides, if the North Koreans decide to allow him to defect, right? Mm. Um, so at this point, we're all just sort of waiting to see mm. how the North Koreans are assessing the situation, um, what they decide on whether or not to allow him to stay. And if they allow him to stay as a defector, rather than um, if the case, like, for instance, for Matthew Todd Miller, where then he then subsequently gets arrested for something else and then becomes a prisoner. And so all of those nuances will matter in how this affects U.S. DPRK relations um, and what the U.S. might do after that decision is made. Jenny, mm. I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you, again, a very simple question. We talk about South Korea. We talk about the role of the U.S. and also we talk about this joint partnership between U.S. and South Korea. Meanwhile, you know, we touch on regarding the country of China. So again, I want to ask you briefly, how much do you think China today is willing actually to help, especially towards the West, when we look at uh, this ongoing threat from North Korea to South Korea and also to the U.S. at this moment? And again, given the fact that today, the relationship between U.S. and China is standing at the crossroads. I mean, again, I have to say it's not getting any better. And I mean, again, depends on how you frame it. But the reality is uh, two friends are not talking to each other or trying to rekindle the relationship, probably take years. But meanwhile, for North Korea, China is still accountable or China is still a key player. How much do you think China is interested in helping the U.S., particularly even with the South Korea, when it comes to the threat from North Korea. What do you say to that, Jenny? Um, you know, I think China does still see it in its interests um, to work on North Korea, to reduce tensions in the region, to make it less of a uh, security in the issue. Mm. Um, I think right now the U.S. and China fundamentally disagree on what the right approach is to do so. Um, the punitive approach that the U.S. takes in terms of, you know, imposing more and more sanctions, the Chinese have already said they don't think this is effective, right? Mm -hmm. We've done it in the past. It didn't change North Korea's calculus. Um, how much China would be willing to play along with the U.S. approach, um, I think, is very, very limited right now. 
um, there isn't an incentive to cooperate on this issue when there isn't cooperation going on in other issues. Um, and I, I think there's also, you know, a large part of this plays into um, U.S.-China competition in terms of China's watching, you know, greater South Korea, Japan um, involvement with NATO. Um, there's greater U.S., South Korea, um, Japan trilateral security cooperation going on in the region, and it's feeding all of the um, anxieties about, uh, a, you know, a U.S.-led security block in the mm. region, U.S. encirclement in the region, or the U.S. and West encirclement of, of China. Um, and in doing so, it, it really does uh, create a dilemma for China because then, you know, as it's looking to create its own reciprocal security block, then North Korea does become an important security partner. So, you know, as much as it might as much as it doesn't like what North Korea is doing on the WMD front and condemns what North Korea is doing on the WMD front, um, it is only going to go so far because its national interests um, still, uh, there's a role for North Korea within its own national security calculus. Mm. Um, so finding cooperation is a more difficult task than it was in 2017 because the relationship between us and china is strained the and the approach you know especially since 2018 that china is willing to take that russia is willing to take towards north korea is very different than what it was in 2017 as well that's right and again today surely china has a lot more things to do and also us Politically speaking, and also from this economic standpoint, it's also standing at the crossroads. But meanwhile, it's surely going to be a very busy year for the country of South Korea as well. So again, for the entire world, everyone is paying attention to North Korea, but everyone is very careful about what to do with the country and also the leader. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Jenny Town. Again, Jenny, it's a senior fellow at the Stimson Center, and she's the director of Stimson's 30A North program. Her expertise is in North Korea, U.S. DPRK relations, and U.S. ROK alliance, and Northeast Asia regional security. Well, Jenny, again, thank you so much for your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And again, as you mentioned before, you're going to travel to South Korea very soon. We hope you have a safe journey. And again, we're looking forward to um, hearing from you and having you back on the show for future episodes. Again, thank you so much for doing this.